On this episode of Three Beers, Two Guys, One Movie Podcast, we give our marquee picks for our favorite Adam Sandler characters, and then we discuss his latest film, Uncut Gems, and before we wrap it up, we spin the wheel a little bit for some fun and laughs, so let's go! One movie podcast, the always fun, the always entertaining, and the always insightful movie review show. I'm Matthew Scott. As always, I'm joined by my friends, Mr. Rod Budman, Mr. Preston Barnes, and Mr. Joseph Fine. Tonight, we're reviewing the Adam Sandler movie, Uncut Gems, which came out, I guess, late 2019. But before we get into the movie, as always, we like to encourage all our loyal listeners to please go on iTunes. And rate if you love our show, please rate our show five stars. Write a nice review; it really helps us out a lot. Um, but before we get into the movie review, we are going to do our marquee picks, which is what we are sort of known for. And since it's an Adam Sandler movie, and since there's so much to get into about Adam Sandler's career, we are going to do our top three favorite Adam Sandler characters in his career through SNL and in movies. And since I picked this movie last week, I'm going to kick it off. So. Our marquee picks, here we go. Uh, my number three marquee pick for Adam Sandler character is from SNL. I've got number three, Canteen Boy. Uh, number two, I've got another one from SNL, <laughs> which is The Gap Girl. I don't know if she has a distinct name or whatever. And number one is also from SNL, so it's a clean sweep because I personally love his uh, interactions with Chris Farley. So my number one is the Hurley he boy <laughs> who does that commercial where he's always like, where he's always begging for someone to, like let him watch their home or whatever. Please let but, me water your plans. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I mean like, you know, obviously it's uh, Adam Sandler's perfect in it. Chris Farley's on the side. I think it's just that I love escalating comedy, the way it just escalates from the beginning where it's just like, please let me watch your home, let me water your plants. And then it keeps on going and going and going to the point where he's begging to let you just live in his house. And uh, Chris Farley, obviously, like I said, he's sort of like the foil to it where Adam Sandler is like this like nice, I won't say nice, but sort of like neutral, un, unupsetting, sort of unthreatening kind of person. And Adam Sandler is just come on let him be you know like he just constantly yells and aggravates it and gets it higher and higher and higher to the point where it's just it's i don't know it's so funny the way that that whole sketch builds up so i i've always loved that sketch uh, <laughs> that is so funny that's a good i've forgotten about that one uh and their hair is both like kind of messed up and it, def, it definitely i feel like every time chris farley starts going off you've got Ben sandler just trying not to laugh 
Based oh yeah, on. you can like you like they kind of zoom in on uh, Chris Farley, but you can see Adam Sandler's like face kind of snickering in the side. But like it's it definitely is because I think there was like some of those uh, like documentaries that just came out about Chris Farley, or whatever. And Chris Farley's goal was always to sort of make people not just the crowd laugh, but sort of make the people like in SNL break character in a sense to laugh. And you can tell like he knows how to push Adam Sandler's buttons. If you sort of watched all of those sketches or whatever, like you can almost feel like a sort of personal, like intimate thing that he like, he knows that that's what he's trying to do. And Adam Sandler knows it too. It's sort of an inside joke amongst the cast or whatever, but no, I mean, it's, it's so funny. I, I've, I've always laughed at that. Uh, anyone else have anything to say about early he boys before we move on to Joe's picks? That was it's kind of like uh, Adam Sandler and Farley's rapport in the Lunch Lady Land skit, <laughs> yeah. where like they're both trying to make each other laugh at the same. Like Adam Sandler can barely get through the song and play it. Like he's laughing yeah. so much at, at Farley coming up and like dancing on him and stuff. Well, well yeah, no, man, that's just an epic skit. Obviously, Chris Farley seals the show there, but it is. I mean, it's one of those you know little clever Adam Sandler tunes. Yeah. Well, there is that, like, so, like, I referenced that documentary that just came out, I think it, like, aired a year ago, whatever, but they were talking about the uh, the Pepper Boys sketch, where, uh, you know, Adam Sandler's joining with Dana Carvey to do the whole sort of Pepper Boy thing, and he, like, acts like some innocent, naive kind of kid trying to make it or whatever, and apparently before that sketch, Chris Farley came up to Adam Sandler, he's like, I'm gonna make you break it, I've got one line, watch me make you break or whatever and he goes thank you pepper boy like he like does this like huge thing like it's a total <laughs> throwaway line but he does it in this like total shakespearean monologue kind of way he's like thank you pepper boy that's the perfect amount of pepper and like he like gets uh, uh but like i said it's the part of those things like in snl like those old days where it was that you understood they were all trying to make each other laugh so it made yeah. you laugh at the same time and I feel like that dynamic's kind of missing a little bit, but uh, those that, are sort of, yeah, go ahead. That, that one other skit with both of them where, uh, I mean, there was a ton, but the one where uh, Chris Farley is and Adam Sandler, uh, Chris Farley plays his wife and Adam Sandler's like the oh, older husband. the Zagat's one? <laughs> the Zagat, and they're like reviewing yeah. restaurants and whatnot and where to go for the yeah. weekend. And yeah, uh, yeah he's always Zagat. like, kill, kill me now, kill me now. <laughs> no they definitely had a great dynamic pills sweet pills <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that is interesting because like everyone always associates uh chris farley with having that straight man as david spade but he and like when i was going back and watching a bunch of stuff to sort of pick some of this out like he and chris like he and adam sandler had this amazing sort of duo dynamic as well too yeah. um all right joe so we'll move to you We've done enough about my picks your top three favorite Adam Sandler characters. All right. Well, I'll try to stay away from the SNL characters <laughs> after Matthew's br brilliant picks. But so I'll go with my third favorite is going to be Robbie Hart from The Wedding Singer. That was <laughs> a dark horse, one of my favorite um, movies growing up. And I loved Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore in that one. The second one is going to be um, Happy Gilmore from. <laughs> and uh, just absolutely classic movie. And the number one is going to be uh, Bobby Boucher from The Water Boy. <laughs> I'm broad broadcasting to you live from New Orleans, Louisiana right now. So <laughs> that one is a favorite of mine. 
I go to, I go to, I go to work in a, uh, a fan boat every day. <laughs> Budman. Hey, Budman. <laughs> we live yeah. it by another day. <laughs> we live, we live it by another day. Uh, that was definitely one of my choices as well. Uh, you can repeat. Okay, well, I would say that we live about another day. Number three, Bobby Boucher. Number two would be um, Happy Gilmore because of him and Chubbs. And uh, what's the uh, – what's Shooter's name? What's that actor's name? Ah, shit. Preston. I know, I can't remember. This is supposed to be you. It's like, uh, no, I, I don't have no idea what his name is. Very... The, the dad from Leave it to Beaver. Well, just go ahead and tell your number one, before, unless you're trying to like talk about him. Well, my number one then would be... Billy Madison? Is that what you said? Yeah, I'll just make sure. <laughs> he was Christopher that. McDonald is the name. Um, his name's yeah. Christopher McDonald? Yeah. The actor? Yeah. What? It sounds like he like sings in the church choir or something like that. Uh, okay. All right. So Billy Madison, Rod, what's your favorite part about Billy Madison? Probably when he says that damn alligator. To <laughs> Not even an Adam Sandler line, but I love Adam Sandler's role in the movie. I think that was, oh, we talking about the alligator would obviously be Happy Gilmore, right? Happy Gilmore, yeah. Damn alligator bit my hand off. Yeah, I think, I think Rod's. Rod's getting his uh, his Sandler's confused a little bit, but let's talk about Billy Madison for a little bit because <laughs> that does again have that sort of Adam Sandler, Chris Farley sort of dynamic. Because honestly, whenever I sort of watch some Adam Sandler stuff, Chris Farley steals his show. Him as the bus driver makes me laugh the most at Billy Madison, but I'm sure there's other things to talk about. So, who else wants to talk a little bit about Billy Madison before we move on a little bit? When he pisses his pants. <laughs> Just Billy pants, right? right? That is such a nice moment of solidarity that you would do something so like sympathetic for like a five-year-old who ac accidentally pisses his pants and then you piss your pants to make him comfortable with the situation. I mean, I think that shows an epic level of uh, maturity. There are just so many, I, yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, <laughs> I forgot my number one pick, y'all. You're changing it? You're changing yes, it. I am. This for the moment, change. A little bit, and I'm sorry to throw this curveball, but Mr. Deeds, <laughs> uh, Longfellow Deeds, <laughs> Longfellow Deeds is great. Longfellow so, Deeds, a lot of people put it way down the list, right behind Spanglish, but I put it ahead of Spanglish. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people get Spanglish. <laughs> a lot of people put Spanglish in punch drug when they don't love. Wait, so I just got to clarify something. Billy Madison is now back off the board. Nobody. It's back off the board. I think, uh, yeah. Unless Rod's trying to push it to number two and move everything back. But I think, I think Rod's not too fixated on his list that he's going to go on Instagram and like battle anyone who objects to it. But go ahead, Preston. <laughs> if you got something to say about Longfellow Deeds or if you want to just go ahead and start your, your picks as well. Um, I mean, I love Longfellow Deeds and I love his... Uh, relationship. Very sneaky. 
<laughs> no, John Turturro's John Turturro definitely steals the show in that one. I, I again, like I said, I almost feel like Adam Sandler is kind of like a late night talk show host in the sense that he sort of directs things and lets other people be funny. Like I know that he's always funny at the same time, but I think he's really good at incorporating other people to like play off of him. If that makes sense, I think he's better at that than other people. I think yeah. that's a perfect point, Matthew, especially with tonight's review coming up. Oh, so you don't think Adam Sandler steals the show? You think some other people are funnier in Uncut Gems? I think KG kills it. <laughs> <laughs> he absolutely uh, does. Yeah, and he's always got like that that group of three guys who are kind of always in this in the movie with him in each movie, and then um, just I feel like yeah, there's always just kind of crazy, funny little characters. I mean. Steve Buscemi has crazy eyes. He also is in Big Daddy and in, um, and in, wait, another movie, I think, Steve Buscemi, but um, what's it called? Think, Wedding Singer. Yeah, but like he's always got like Rob Schneider. He's always got like Rob Chris Schneider. Rock. Like Kevin James is now part of that yeah. little group or whatever. It but is kind of odd. Three it guys. is sort of like, it's an interesting thing, though, because some of those like SNL guys like have that sort of fraternity vibe where they're always going to include their buddies. But the, yeah. like, it's always interesting to see who they choose to like bring along in their circle, <laughs> because Chris Kattan almost feels like he's gotten left out. Like no one loved Chris Kattan. I feel like his like whole career died, but he's not a part of that SNL fraternity for some reason. I, not to bring up something that's totally random and off the beaten path, but that's always something that's sort of like made me think is that like maybe everyone hated Chris Kattan on SNL and just let him. All right, Preston. Uh, I was going to say it's the second or third time we brought up Chris Kutan on this <laughs> podcast. His career fascinates me, so I always have to like bring it up when it comes into play. Uh, all right, Preston, we'll go with your, your top three picks, and we'll move on to Uncut Gems. So your three favorite Adam Sandler roles. All right, well, to me, these are kind of interchangeable. Uh, but number three, Billy Madison. Number two, Happy Gilmore. And number one, a bit of a uh, curveball here, um, is the goat from <laughs> What the Hell Happened to Me. <laughs> I thought about including that, but I didn't know, like, it, I couldn't, like, name the characters. I love, like, his, uh, I mean, not to, like, change the subject, but obviously the goat is one of my favorite sketches, but the little Donnie McMillan one is so funny, too. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, let's let's talk about the goat for a bit, because that one is really, really funny. Holy shit. There, there are a ton of good ones. I, I also love the champion. That one really made me laugh. But the uh, the goat was, like, the first, um, well, it was, like, one of the, that album, What the Hell Happened to Me, was one of the first, like, comedy skit album, like CDs, you know, that I went and got at Coconuts Music. Yeah. That was, you know, parental advice. At the back of the bus, we were listening to that shit. Dude, I was just about to say, because I think like one of our friends had it and like we were on a field trip on the bus and I remember like it was getting passed around. It was like, well, no, so-and-so's got to listen to it first. So-and-so's got, so you're third in line. So like, I was just waiting desperately. Like we all had our CD players like waiting so like one person could get it. But yeah, so good. Well, I mean, yeah, that that one always stuck out to me. I mean, when we thought of this, these marquee picks category, I, I, that, I just immediately I was like, God, the fucking goat! Like, I just, I laugh. I remember laughing so hard as a as a young one, but uh, I listened to it earlier today, and it's still hilarious. It's almost like funnier now because there are little bits and pieces of like just the banter between uh, him and like some of those 
those actors who are in some of the like in those movies with him. Peter Dante, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Yeah, the guy in uh from Grandma's Boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of the funny bit is just like imagining what a goat sounds like, and it, he right. like makes it sound like some like rustic dude. He's like the Ragua Festival, you know? Like it's like, <laughs> like in no way, shape, or form. Like, do you know what a goat's voice would sound like? But his projection onto what it sounds like is so yeah. silly. Well, I mean, I really it just goes into like you know Adam Sandler's like old Jewish man voice, where he yeah. does like for all of his characters, where he's like, he's like, like oh, you know, you button hooked me. <laughs> yeah, that's that uh. It's a talking goat, and he's like, "Yes, I'm the fucking talking goat." <laughs> yeah, it's like half like Mexican, like half Jewish. Yeah. It's, it's very. Yeah. It's, like, it's like the old man will come out and kick the shit out of me if I don't. Yeah. He, yeah. he sounds like Cheech Marin a little bit. Like, so yeah, he kind of does. Yeah. But he like alternates funny. back and forth. It's so. It's funny too because uh, on. Like in the uh, like when you're listening to it, some of the sound effects they do for like the goat's hooves are hilarious. Like you can hear it. He's supposed to be in a truck tied up before they let him down, and well, you can just hear his like his hooves just like clomping around on the fucking. It's truck. also a funny premise that they're like, "Yeah, I'm gonna take my friends to go see a talking goat before we go to the concert," but in no way, shape, or form will we let it free, feed it, do anything. It's just like, "Hey, yeah. entertain us for a second. We're all fucking stoned." <laughs> Well, they throw the football with it, remember, and it hits. Oh him. yeah, yeah. I think he says something like, "Ah, oh, fuck me in the goat." Like yeah. No, I mean the, that. Goes, put your dukes up, and I got fucking no dukes. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there really are. There are too many like crazy lines. Uh, yeah, like I said, I I love the Donnie McMillan one too, where they like they can't spell. But no, yeah. the goat thing is <laughs> the goat one is so fantastic. I have can I have an honorable mention, please, for my character? Yeah, go for as it. As an addendum to the uh, "What the Hell Happened to Me" album, the sex or weightlifting skit <laughs> is one of the funniest skits that I have like to this day. Like I cannot, you know, get through that without throwing up. Like, yeah, definitely weightlifting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's clearly like <laughs> no. I probably listened to it ten years, but I just remember, like you said, Joe. I think we probably have the same friends who would, uh, you know, reference that back and forth. That one is that one is truly, like you said, is so ridiculous. <laughs> so, like, no the way dumb bills like, in here. They're just my ball. <laughs> He's like, so Donnie I just, uh, I just sneak up a little uh, tape recorder here. Donnie McMillan, press, the, let's play. the respect one. Yeah, the respect. <laughs> No, I mean that. that Gotta you know, respect that, the condom. Yeah, that was that album is so so funny. Anyways, well, that, I mean, honestly, speaking of respect, though, that gives me more and more respect in terms of like Adam Sandler's career because, in some ways, I like I felt like he was always sort of living in the same sort of character, or whatever. But as we've talked about this, it's so clear that he had so many great ideas when he was younger. But now he might be coasting a little bit, but uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, so what we're gonna do now. That was a great, great segment for the Marquee Picks. We're going to move into our discussion of Uncut Gems. Uh, <laughs> so basically, uh, Uncut Gems is basically about some, like, the story of a gambling addict, Howie, what's his name, Howie Ratner, who lets his habit get in the way of his business and his family. And like a lot of people trying to get out of a hole, he thinks the this one, like, sort of investment in this Opal or whatever is going to solve his problems. Um so what I want to talk about, obviously, first, I really don't know what y'all thought, but this movie kind of starts 
I thought it kind of started sort of like Jurassic Park. Uh, I thought it was like an homage to Jurassic Park, the way they sort of go into that cave and like sort of discover the opal the same way in Jurassic Park when they go into that cave and sort of discover that mosquito like stuck in amber or whatever. Uh, I know there's I know there's yeah. no like real like correlation between the two or whatever, but like like uh, Raiders just to of kick the it Star. off. Yeah, just to quick kick it off in terms of how it starts or whatever. Did y'all like? Did y'all think of anything like in terms? Of, did y'all were when you were watching this? Did y'all have any correlations between other movies? I had Jurassic Park, like I said in the beginning. Obviously, it has nothing to do with the plot of Jurassic Park, but I also thought it was kind of reminiscent of Fargo at the same time. But what what, what were y'all's thoughts in terms of how it started, and what what do y'all want to talk about a little bit? I kind of had a like a blood diamond feel, you know, out <laughs> well, in the yeah. middle of nowhere at a mine in Africa. I was thinking like, oh man, somebody's arm's about to get chopped off, or you know, there's. <laughs> there's some kind of, you know, grungy corporate element to this that they're trying to exploit the natural resources, that kind of deal. That's what I was getting out of it. So were you surprised when it went a different angle? Like if you hadn't seen this before, like, well, like, did you think it almost started in a certain way and then it kind of never drifted back in that? Or like, what'd you think? Well, no, I mean, the diamond exchange is definitely connected to that. It's just like, it's just a step removed from blood diamond. It's not like the actual extraction of the stone that we're seeing and getting it out of the country. It's like the other end It's the actual selling and marketing of these stones um, in New York and Antwerp and Amsterdam and places like that. And like the, the grummy underworld of that. So have you guys, that's, that's uh, kind of the other thing I have written down about just the opening was, have you guys ever heard that sort of bit where obviously we just talked about comedy albums with Adam Sandler or whatever, but this comedy album was sort of influ influential in my high school life. But if you, do you guys ever listen to the shut up you fucking baby album by David Cross? And he yeah. does that, he does that bit about like, do like the gold plated dessert. And he talks oh, about yeah, like, yeah. it's, it's the exact, like when I was watching that, I was thinking the exact same thing. He was talking about like these like poor people who were just like egged on, like, go, 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 go. Mind that fucking gold, man. Mind that fucking gold, man. So I can fucking eat it. Like, it's like, yeah. it's the same thing. Like, he's like, oh man, this guy like spent all of his time, broke his legs, broke his fingers, mind that gold so he could pay off his wife's medical debt. And here I am eating that gold and I'm just going to go, go shit it out in the bathroom, you know, type of thing. Yeah. But it, it was like... It, like a sliver of gold on a dessert is kind of yeah yeah about. no it's just so uh, i really i kind of feel like that's the idea that they were getting across is that these people were sort of slaving away so this person could sort of live like an opulent life or whatever uh yeah i think i mean i i, I certainly would that was probably one part of it and also i mean like you know like at the end and in, in a probably the most interesting back and forth between them uh kg and and howard kind of had that like back and forth about like oh he's like how much did you pay for this yeah you know and then like well you know we can get to that a little bit more but but i do think yeah i, I think that could easily be i mean that's an obvious juxtaposition the only thing is it's like it's such a quick scene at the beginning like I, it seems like they're just trying to basically just seamlessly go from just like the the little psychedelic picturesque thing of inside the diamond right right into howard's world in new york but i mean yeah yeah, yeah. i'm not trying to read too much into it i was just sort of thinking like i was just sort of thinking out loud in terms of what i saw with it i was like is there a connection to dress quark with the people that were making it sort of like mildly influenced by it and then i thought of that david cross thing that's all i was sort of getting at i didn't think there was like a deeper Maybe. meaning to it uh joe are you, about to, are you about to speak sorry 
No, I was just stretching. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was like a loud stretcher. <laughs> so, uh, so we're going from like the beginning, but like, so we did talk about that in terms of where it actually starts with that, uh, that diamond being mined, but ultimately the story kind of starts in the middle of things. So like we sort of start within like Howard's life in terms of like, we don't start where he started gambling or how we started gambling or sort of like him getting in trouble. We start with things with him being fully in debt to these people. Um, yeah. Did y'all, were y'all expecting more context to come back to it in a sense? Like uh, usually when like films or TV shows or books start in medias race in the middle of things, they kind of jump back. Like my one example would be like the Iliad sort of starts in the middle of the Trojan War, but then it jumps back to like the kidnapping of Helen of Troy. Like this never actually jumped back. Like did y'all ever think that y'all kind of wanted more context to his problem or did y'all think it was like, explained well enough to the point where like you weren't even thinking about it when you say his problem do you mean as in like his debt to his brother-in-law yeah yeah kind right. of thing like did, would you wish that there was something like that it, like you saw the beginning of it in a sense or, or are you satisfied with that it just started and you're going oh i accept this i mean i think it would be nice i guess because it is i mean it's basically the main point of tension like throughout the whole film yeah is, is this deal so like i mean you start to kind of figure it out but like i had, i even had because they never really they never really specify or at least that, that, that i remember i had to look up exactly like arno's like yeah. what was the deal what was it and he's just like a loan shark and yes yeah, is and howard owed him like a hundred hundred thousand yeah uh, I, like but I didn't, it never really made it clear and i would have appreciated it but, you know yeah, I, I should say it's not tough to follow, but I really do wish there would have been more established context. And it was two and a, like two hours and 15 minutes long. So they definitely had time to sort of incorporate this yeah. stuff. But it's again, it almost seemed like a giant character piece, but the only character we really, really got into was Howard. Uh, yeah, so who are the other two guys? They're just like his henchmen or seems like that one guy seems to call some shots. Are you talking about the uh, the guy who's connected to KG? Is that what you're talking about? No, I'm talking about like Arno's two dudes who are. With oh yeah, yeah. We never really get too much insight into any other character, and like so, like when I compared it to Fargo earlier, that movie is actually shorter, but it also gives a way broader depth of so many intricate plot lines going on and so many other characters. To me, this was just like strictly a Howard story that went on maybe a little too long. Um, and that I wished I could have sort of gotten some context in terms of his family and also like some of his business stuff. But Joe, well, you're it was kind of like supposed to be what, what I got from it was like a whirlwind of a degenerate gambler. You know, like you kind of slowly got pieces of like how big of a kind of an, an asshole and shithead this guy <laughs> is when, you know, at, at first you get that he's shacked up with these. Uh, these chicks in, in his in an apartment that he's got for them away from his family you know the, all this kind of comes to you know gradually this information comes gradually and you kind of see how you know his gambling affects his relationship with his kids like his kids are already gambling he misses yeah. a lot of their social events uh plays and stuff like that you know he gets tied up and beaten up at one of their uh, performances and left naked in the trunk um outrageous <laughs> but yeah it's just i think the, the character it was kind of self-explanatory i think the way that they 
the the way they set it up was that this is you know like this is a sleazy diamond dealer in the diamond district of new york and you know what do you expect him how do you expect him to treat his family or his 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 kids or you know his his side piece so i guess, I guess the only question i would have to say to you joe I, like, I agree in terms of i think there's a there is enough information but at the same time like i feel like it escalated to the point like like you're talking about he got left in his trunk uh of his car at his daughter's rehearsal or whatever um we never saw how it escalated escalated to that point we just heard that well, you like, kind of saw it yeah in, like, it's almost in every, like all I, the interactions that he was a loser you know yeah, he was I, always getting stepped on and all, like, i guess you needed like at least at least in my eyes in terms of story or whatever i need at least one or two times where he like defaulted on his payments or something before you get to that point but like, like if if it's acceptable like i said uh, that's just me in terms of like the story or whatever and they had enough time it was two and a half hours but again that's just could be just a, a point of objective confusion or whatever it's yeah. not like a big I, deal yeah well i Rod, think it be, him being at the end of his rope was like part of the tension you know, like this yeah. is it like well no I, yeah I, that's that's something you always are, are learning when you're trying to write characters or whatever but i would i would at least argue a little bit do you build someone to the point where they're the end of the rope or do you start with somebody when they're the end of the rope and i I kind of like the build and then see how it climaxes but this one started kind of right at the beginning and in my eyes i like to see a little bit of context but i can understand when some people uh are perfectly happy to see it jump right in right are you shaking your head because you disagree you shaking your head because you don't want to add if i may yeah go for it I was just going to say, I think Joe has nailed this movie's nail head on the head. Um, I, I think it was like it's the opposite side of both Blood Diamond, where, you know, you're seeing the um, kind of the other side of that story, which also um, I, I think they provided more than enough background and you, you, like you said, he's, it starts off kind of in the middle of the story, but I mean, you very quickly understand he's obviously not a good gambler. He's down on his luck. I don't think there's any good gamblers out there, probably. There's probably the smart ones who are good at blackjack, but, but um, I, I guess what I'm saying is that I, I, don't, I think they provided more than enough context in the movie made you feel as if you were in his shoes like it actually gave me kind of like anxiety like watching adam sandler go through all of it or to have his uh, his family counter bid on an auction and then him <laughs> getting stuck with the item for 190 grand uh, i mean there there are endless situations like that i mean obviously as the movie goes on like it escalates to like a ridiculous uh, climax at the very end, obviously, and he's just yeah. I mean, he's a he's a degenerate gambler. He's a des he's desperate. He's a he's pretty much like you were saying, Joe, a loser. Like he's like a pushover in, in the sense like he's just and he's just trying to get that next win. And then but but like he doesn't have any at least to my like in my opinion doesn't have any intention on stopping. You know, after he gets that big win, he's gonna keep going. He's gonna keep fucking people over. Um, but I mean, like it is, it's like this mesmerizing chaos the whole time, like watching it because I mean, it's, it's hard to 
watch it is i agree with you but man it is a bit anxiety inducing but like you, you just you're you want to see like all right fuck is he going to get out of this situation and as it goes on you know he just really doesn't it just becomes like so frantic and i mean every he's always scene- chasing the she's always chasing the dragon you know, he's always like trying to get the uh, the pot of gold at the end of the well, movie. No, no, like being a gambling addict is a little bit like being in like a Ponzi scheme or whatever. You're constantly trying to pay off your debts and make new bets to pay off your debts. You never actually sort of reach the goal. And I think that's sort of what this story was in the sense that like in some ways he kind of was getting to that plateau where he was going to do it. But when you have so much trouble and so much problems, you piss off so many people, you actually sort of create more and more barriers, not just monetarily, but relationship wise. And it just, it ended for him. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it is like you were saying, Joe is like, it, it's a Ponzi scheme. Go ahead, President. I just, and, and it, it's, and it's odd because he is such a, if you step back, it's, he's obviously a terrible person. Um, but but since the movie is so singular in, as far as like it is so focused on his character um, that you you do like you just you're like hoping like God can you just get one fucking win for a second so we can like have a breather <laughs> like I can't take this anymore and then he yeah you know he has a couple of moments but they're always overshadowed by like, oh fuck he always makes the wrong decision yeah this is this is about to get worse you All still right, so- owe money to your brother-in-law. <laughs> All right, so I do want to ask a question that sort of relates to this, unless anybody wants anybody else wants to add. So I'm going to move along a little bit. But um, so the whole story, like we were talking about, revolves around Howard needing this sort of like um, un like I said like uncut opal to solve his problems. He was thinking it was going to be worth a million dollars, kind of thing, and he's going to be able to pay off all his debts. But a question I have in terms of maybe a plot hole, but was why couldn't he have just sold some of the jewelry he had? Like he easily had, you know, $150,000 worth of gold and jewelry in his store to solve his problem. Or was the implication was that it was all fake because of that sort of B plot where there was a fake Rolex being sold. So do you think like he was selling fake jewelry or do you think like, or, like, how do you think that they meshed that story together in terms of he needed tons of money, but he had the inventory to pay it off. But like he also had was selling fake Rolexes at the same time. Do you think like all of his jewelry is fake or do you think that might just be sort of a missing sort of plot hole type of thing? That's a good question. I think, yeah. I think it speaks to like his compulsion as a gambler. It's like, I still, he's like, I have all this, like, you know, he doesn't really want to lose anything. He doesn't want to lose all that stuff. So I don't even think he's really even considering. Like, I mean, yeah, no, that's a good point in terms of like, maybe he wants to hide it so much. He's already hiding it from his family, his parents i mean i guess but his kids and everything that maybe he like like you said he doesn't want to liquidate his assets because if he does it's a point of pride that he's got a problem or that he's in debt he doesn't want to do that so like he's trying to figure out a way to do it without letting anybody know so that is possible but like i said he may have not had time dude because as soon as he got the stone and he's like my problems are solved this shit hit the fan you know well uh, i wouldn't i wouldn't argue the time point because he does pawn off that ring quickly. He could go and pawn off some gold really quickly. He's in a diamond district. He could go to some neighbor or something like that. Get It might not be a good price, but I think he had enough inventory to the point where he could have paid it off. But I'm also curious why, like, the people that were actively wanting his money, why they didn't just sort of say, hey, I'm going to take this, you owe me kind of thing. Uh, I feel like well, it's I a think they did at the end. <laughs> At the end, they did absolutely. Well, I I'm think curious they, why they did do it sooner. 
Well, well because I think like, because they were friends. I mean, it was all like, you know what I mean? It, they got to their end of their rope after they had been locked in the security booth for the entirety <laughs> of that NBA game. And yeah, yeah. the guy That's... had enough and shot him. So, like, it's just like, here are the people that you're dealing with. And, you know, like, if you're in this world, like, you know, the house always wins. That's what a gambler always should know, you know. And that was kind of the, the to me, that was the big moral of this film was that like you can never beat the house and at the end like he never even got to realize his victory or his winnings no that's absolutely true we, we definitely are talking about the ending a little bit rod you feel like you feel like you got something to point in here i mean i just you know um you know i i really i don't know if it was because i was so close to michael and i saw michael go through his gambling struggles but was it, not, <laughs> was it not as anxiety producing for y'all as it was for me? I just, I was very much, maybe it's because I The second embarrassment was huge. Maybe <laughs> I went to Vegas, but I really felt like anxious and was pulling for him the whole time. And I guess we've already touched on all that. And um, yeah, well, I do want to touch about that. So Roger, you bring up a really good point is was Howard a sympathetic character so rod seems to think he kind of was that like he was pulling for him to win but does everyone else kind of think he was or wasn't i i think that's an actual like point to a point of discussion is that like what does he do in your head that almost makes him sympathetic or not besides just being the main character like what redeeming qualities does he have i i mean i the silence, I guess, in some ways is, is, is definitely in terms many. of... <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. a short list. I mean, it's like he's evil or you know, like harms anyone, but I mean, yeah. he actually cares about his family, but doesn't treat them well. I mean, he's what? actually trying to provide for them, but, you know, there's not a lot of redeeming qualities to him. I kind of felt myself being like, what a fucking idiot. You make <laughs> wrong decisions every single, you know, at every turn you make the the opposite of what you should be doing. And well, that's what that, I was kind of getting at earlier yeah. in terms of like, you wish there was more development in terms of characters. I wish there was more development with his family. So you could see like how he was affecting them in a positive and negative sense. Like was he a good father, but he also was so drawn into gambling that like he was negating that sort of positive impact he may have had on his kids. That's kind of, kind of was, I was, I should have explained that better at the beginning, but like I said, I, I, Rod, what, what are you going to get? I'm sorry. No, no, I think Preston. Preston. Well, I mean, like, I just, I just think that, uh, yeah, I, I, my, my hunch is that the Safdie brothers stylistically, like, they, they just, and just how they wrote this, like, they wanted us to basically be, like, focused on Howie and kind of, like, see everything from his point of view. I mean, like, if you think about it, we're, we're, everything is, like, we're seeing it on his terms. We're seeing all of his decisions, all of his, yeah. all of his. And so I, I just think it was just a all out character piece. Like they're not really yeah. focused necessarily on everybody else. And I think, yes, if we look at it that way, you do like, all right, there are some plot holes or some character development holes. But I think again, like this, this movie was, it's just like, it's for this character. I think it's for, it was made for Adam Sandler to have this uh, potentially this big moment. And I also just think that's the way those, those brothers like to do, do, uh, movies i mean it just i mean it's it's fascinating to watch for sure like i I think i use the word mesmerizing like it was and and you definitely 
you definitely hate what like everything he's doing and, and you 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 know if you knew that person in real life you'd be a fucking piece of shit it's yeah, weird it's part of the thing it's an interesting dynamic like they make you kind of root for him like budman was saying even though he's clearly terrible but it's it's like that anti-hero thing even though I wouldn't even go that far for this character. but still. I don't think you want anyone to die. I kind of was wondering how, like, his ending situation was be, would be. But, like, I, again, it is, like what Preston said, it, I think it's a giant character piece. But when you're watching it, you kind of have inclinations to wonder how other people are reacting and you wish you could get a little bit more. Um, Rod, were you about to say something? I was going to say, back to the the – point that y'all were actually talking about a second ago that I went a completely different direction about whether or not like he has enough to cover his debts that yeah. what also I think is one of his and that this goes back to Joe Joe's point of not really developing the plot and um, the, the, I like that because you kind of get to go in your mind and come up with what you think is going on yeah. So back to that point, I think he had more than enough to cover his debts with his, okay. with his, you know, between his diamonds and his gold or whatever. Because I mean, they still lived in a nice house, and oh yeah, you know, yeah. I think he still cared about the wife and kids. Um, you know, I think when you're in well, debt to those type of people, like you're gonna take, you know, whatever punishment they dole out. Well, I think what you're saying is it's a pride situation. He doesn't want to admit to his kids that he's in trouble and like kind of thing, but he is willing to admit to his wife because the wife knows once he gets caught in that trunk at the rehearsal, whatever, she kind of knows what's going on. And you can tell that's not the first time. It's Yeah, exactly. So in a sense, like that's what I was kind of getting at is like, why didn't he just kind of like, cause the wife would obviously understand like, yes, yeah, sell 20 gold, necklaces or whatever to pay off your debt or whatever like it, it is a little bit kind of confusing in the sense that the wife knows what's going on he does have like you said rod the maybe the inventory or the liquidation possibilities to make this stuff happen but he does it, it's it's a little muddling but i think i think what you're getting at like you said is it's a pride situation he wants to figure it out all on his own and to me, the yeah. bases are loaded. There's one out. It's the bottom <laughs> of the night. The bunt signs on, and he swings for the fences every time. Okay. <laughs> and I think so do you blame it on the person, or do you blame it on the third base coach is what what I'm getting at, Rod? Definitely the third base coach, Terry Yeah, Pendleton. so it's not his fault. Uh, Terry Pendleton. <laughs> yeah, Terry Pendleton. Um, <laughs> always waving him in. All right, Preston, you have, uh, do we want to talk about the ending real quick in terms of uh, before we move on to the wheel, let's talk about the ending because the ending is, I think, a little bit surprising. Um, yeah. When you watch it, if you hadn't read before what happened, um, like I said, Howie gets shot straight in the face. Did you think that was uh, – um, what do you want to say? Uh, I have no idea. I'm, I'm struggling for the word. But do you think it was uh, something that he deserved, or do you think it was surprising? Was it more for shock effect, or do you think it was Definitely more for was story effect? surprising. Was it surprising? No, because you knew he, he couldn't win. It was just like how it was going to end. Like, what, is he going to get stolen yeah. or was he going to get killed? I mean, like, I wasn't – I mean, it was a little jarring when he got shot in the face as soon as he came out. But I was like, yeah, well, that's about fitting, you know, I think, for his – I know. think the common saying is, like, that most characters get what they deserve. 
right? So like sometimes you like when when someone's like writing something, they uh, you have to think in terms of are you trying to shock the audience? Are you trying to make it realistic? Do you think he deserved to die, or do you think maybe he deserved to just lose everything in a sense? Like he lost his girlfriend, he lost his wife, he lost his kids, kind of thing. Or do you think he actually deserved to die, Joe? Like you said, it wasn't surprising. Let's hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, I think that it, it, he was kind of set up. The whole movie was a, a race to his end. You know, yeah. like I, uh, I, it, he he never. Uh, he lost at every turn, so you were kind of thinking, "When's the big, the big L going to come?" Yeah, and it, it came in the last scene. But, you know, See, I, I was just I, I was thinking, not surprised. Was, I, I just thought he was going to lose his family and kind of lose his business, kind of thing, and just sort of be left with nothing. I was kind of a little bit shocked that he got killed. Is what I was saying. Like I thought that's what his, you know, comeuppance would be. Like I, I, I to me, I thought, like I said, he was just going to sort of lose everything in a way like maybe the girl that he thought like you know was his mistress was going to love him but she walked away with the money and he was left with nothing kind of thing i was sort of like expecting that rather than him just get straight shot in the face no but, get burned uh, no, no second chances president what do you think uh did you think the ending was acceptable do you read questions about it what do you think uh i mean i thought it was it was a great ending as far you know <laughs> And I saw this in theaters and I, even I wasn't like, I just wasn't ready necessarily for that moment. I don't know why yeah. it, it certainly like shocked me. And I will say like the people around me and throughout the theater just fucking screamed <laughs> so loudly when it happened. And it, I just, I just remember I had my mouth wide open, like, Oh my God, like, you know, I just wasn't ready for it. And, and to me that is, I, I love a twist. Not really. That wasn't really a twist, but I love a surprise, especially towards the end of yeah. it. And I like I appreciate that as a viewer. Like it was to me unexpected, at least at that moment. And now you look back and you can kind of see some signs. Like watching it the second time, obviously, like once you know that guy's a gun, I think that's a pretty uh, telltale sign that something might happen. But yeah, yeah I mean, it kind of it, it kind of goes back to how we were talking about. Like at least I was escalating to a point. So like I'll. I, I know this has nothing to do with in terms of the movie, but I was talking about in terms of that Adam Sandler skit with the whatever, the Helfrey boy, whatever it's called, whatever. But the it keeps on boy. going. Hurley boy, but it keeps on going. It starts at the beginning and sort of keeps on going and going. So like Adam Sandler yeah. like starts at owing his debt, but he keeps on building and building and building to the point where he actually just gets shot in the face. Um, yeah. <laughs> before we move into the wheel, Rod, do you have any thoughts on the ending or what, what, do, you, what do you want to do? Um, no, I don't think he deserved it. Okay. Um, and I think it was very much a surprise. I was expecting like Liam Neeson to come in and <laughs> I did I did have a feeling like maybe he was going to get that win and somehow I, I, I think it was maybe a, just a, a fleeting like idea, like what if he gets that win? Like it seems like now his his family life is pretty screwed. He's just yeah. gonna he's just gonna go with julia and fucking dip out of town you know like, we, my thoughts were like i said my thoughts were he like the girl was not going to call him back after she won a million dollars and he's going to be stuck with these people and like have to sort of like do some type of you know sell a store to get the money or whatever i thought that was almost a fair you know what he deserved in terms of his character or whatever but like i said he got killed it's all up to debate. We debated it. So that's great. So what we're going to do is we're going to move on to the wheel here. 
Um, question, num- yeah. question number one is knock of the old knock off the old Cohen Brothers book. We already kind of talked about who's similar to Fargo. Uh, Let's go Grambling, a little reference to Dr. Brule. Colin YL. Um, you're the producer. Uh, Shark Take voice. I'm out. Long John Filmers. Whammy. Speculative, speculative history. Let's get physical and respin. So, um, what we're going to do is we're going to spin the wheel here for a little bit. We're going to do like four questions or whatever. Um, whoever wants to go first, we can just, you know, make it work. We don't have to make it. Everyone usually answers the question, so to speak. Oh, number eight. Uh, hold on, let me get, get here. Number eight is, all right, speculative history. Let's see how he doesn't get killed and pays his debts. How does this story continue? Does he leave town with the million dollars and say, fuck it, in terms of like abandoning his family? Or is he bound to keep repeating his mistakes? Um, we already talked about how he's sort of a degenerative gambler or whatever. Do you think once he hits big that he'll sort of just let it go? Or do you think he would always be subject to keep on doing it as is? I think that he would, as soon as he got his hands on the million dollars, say like, say he did get the cash, he would immediately, you would immediately be thrown into a scene with him. Like, you know, either getting pitched some crazy idea for him to invest the money in, <laughs> or he's trying to like you know bet it on a horse race or something, and we're at the track and you know yeah. biting our knuckles to see if like this horse finishes first. You know, like, yeah, I, I kind of think the I do kind of think the film answers the question in the sense because he is offered an opportunity to end it and he decides to gamble. But I was curious if you thought he was offered more money, would he let it go? Preston, what do you think? Uh, I I know I I think this is he's this is his cycle like yeah based on what we just saw you know in this film I mean unless you know unless you want to be like optimistic about like oh, maybe just, <laughs> he's gonna go ahead of rehab and then he's gonna you know turn his life around but like I just think it's yeah like the way they told the story like this is this was his this is his fate I mean he's just gonna keep gambling and he's going to yeah like keep fucking up his life rod do you you want to add before we spend anything or what do you think okay oh he's on mute you're on mute (laughs) mute. okay what is that (laughs) all right so we'll keep on spinning this we'll do three more um everyone please don't see much redemption in his character essentially (laughs) yeah exactly all right All right, so we're doing number two. Let's go Grambling. Obviously a reference to Dr. Steve Brule on um, the Tim and Eric show. We only see Howard make two bets with his bookie in this movie, and they're both parlays. Do you think that was an intentional form of symbolism or just a character trait that he loves huge, risky playoffs? Um, What I'm kind of getting at is that, like, he keeps on sort of double-downing on his decisions in his life that so like that keep on sort of compounding into being riskier and riskier do you think that like when they wrote that he only makes parlays that was sort of some type of symbolic reference to how he operates in his life or do you think it was just sort of coincidence might be a little too much i'm reaching with this question 
No, I think that, you know, uh, with parlay bets, you have to have so many things go right that there's so much tension involved yeah. in that that it kind of makes for good. It reads well. In a yeah. Movie. You know, like you'll be able, you, you know, you can create that on-screen tension, you know, if, if Garnett's got to get 20 rebounds and, you know, 30 points and he's got to get the opening tip. So there's so much shit that's got to go right that you've got to pay attention to that it's kind of built in. For like a you know twenty five minutes attention of a movie. Yes, yeah, so I, I sort of felt like that's what it is with his life. Like he's got to hit the bats, he's got to make this person do this and this person do that. Blah blah blah. To ultimately yeah, his come, yeah, yeah, yeah. His life's one big parlay. I was wondering if that was symbolic or not, or if it, do you think that was coincidental, Preston? I think what was coincidental? Oh, again? like it, just in the sense that, like, do you think that, like, since he made like big parlay bets because. Do you think that was just because he was a yeah. big time gambler and like the high risk of it? Or do you think that was symbolic in the, in the terms of how he was operating his life? It might be a little bit of a push, but like Joe and I said, like he's constantly trying to sort of make yeah. shit happen on nothing. I think, I mean, I just think like, yeah, those risky bets. Like, I think it just, it falls in line with kind of like his situation and just like the frantic pace of, you know, the, the entire film. I just, It'd be kind of weird if he was just doing these like really easy bets, just like on the side, like throughout, you know. But like, I, I just, yeah, I think that that just fits right into his character. That that's that's what he would have been doing. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, like I said, it could just be a character trait where like they're trying to express that how unrealistic he thinks in terms of how he's going to operate in terms of win money or whatever. Yeah. But like I said, it also could, also could be more thought out in terms of having some little layered to it. Rod, what? Are you? Do you think anything about this, or should we move on to the wheel? Feel, feel uh, no, forward? I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I'm unsure if you're on to something on the symbolism or not. Yeah, and, it's. I, I feel like I'm reaching, but also, go ahead. Uh, do you think? No, but I think you're on to something because I mean, like every, you know, once you get in the hole, and he's in the hole from the very get go. Yeah, all you're doing is then chasing a big win, and you know, you're not gonna go and whatever he's down let's what what did he end up being down like 180,000 yeah something like 165 something like that yeah yeah so, I mean like let's just say he's down like 25 grand if he throws down five grand and he wins a parlay then he's okay but well, like Joe said he's got to hit a bunch of different angles and it's like made it multi-layered that's sort of the thing is like, do you think he started with sort of a low amount? Obviously he did. And then just kept on parlaying it to a big amount, like because of his shitty bets or uh, I guess it really doesn't matter. It's not really a question worth answering, but it's, it's, it's something to think about. Like, was he being overly risky just for the sake of it? Or do you think like he was trying, or do you think he was trying to be risky to pay off his debts? That's what, that's what I'm kind of getting at. It's like, do you think he was making normal bets at first built up a tab and then tried to risk everything with parlays to pay it off. I think yes. And all degenerate gamblers think that they're smarter than the odds makers. Like that's just, yeah. that's how it is. And like Joe said, the house always wins and there's a reason why. Yeah. I mean, in the long run, you're never going to win. I don't know. <laughs> All right. No, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, so we're going to move on to one last spin, and then we're going to do the rankings. All right. So.
So <laughs> let's, is that number five? Number five, uh, Shark Take voice, I'm out. So at what point of Howie's troubles would you have just started liquidating your assets, admit to your family that you need help and pay your debts instead of just doubling down to the point where you die? In a sense, like, I personally, when I was watching this, would say, okay, I would never do this. Like, I got to the point where I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, well, as he keeps doubling down, how much pride do you think you would have to the point where you go, all right, there's no way I would ever do this in this situation. Um, go for it, whoever wants to talk. <laughs> as soon as I got my ass kicked at the Passover pageant, <laughs> you know, in front of everybody, and yeah. my wife had to get me out of the trunk naked, then I would yeah. have to make some, some changes. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was thinking, 100%. And I was so shocked that she knew what was going on. Like, I was like, oh my, that's what, that's how you knew it was going to keep going forward. That was such an embarrassing moment. I mean, if you're not going to stay, like, from the get-go, like, when you're <laughs> already so much in debt, and, you know, like, you got your brother-in-law and his fucking cronies are up your ass every 10 minutes and you have these odd looking twins who are coming up to you as well if you didn't freak out by then then surely the time to bail would be when your wife uh unlocks the trunk to see <laughs> tied up naked in your own car i think at that point uh, all of your dignity would would be gone, and you'd be like, "Okay, I think I need to just uh, take a break." Yeah, I guess it's one of those things, like because in the story that like they're already sort of divorced, they just haven't told their kids, so it doesn't affect them to the point that it maybe would affect someone that was normally married or whatever. But at the same time, it's still just something that's so humiliating and so ridiculous that if anyone found you in that situation that you care about you think you at least try to make some type of change. Um, all right, so we finished the wheel. We're gonna move on to our rankings. And this time we're gonna do it a little bit differently. Instead of going out of 100, we're actually gonna parse it in terms of four different categories. We're gonna do one out of 25 in terms of acting, one out of 25 in terms of plot, one out of 25 in terms of dialogue, and one out of 25 in terms of music, and then we'll add it together to make a score of 100. So uh, I've written down the order that we usually go in. Rod, I'm sorry to make you go first, but that's sort of how this has been written down. One out of 25 in terms of acting in this movie, what do you think? I would give it a 20. 20? An even 20. An even 20. <laughs> Is that just for Adam Sandler's performance or are you including some other people? It's just hard for me, for him to break out of the comedy role. Yeah, I, it, no, I understand it's serious. that. It's, it's hard for me to take him serious. It'd be yeah. like Ben Stiller. <laughs> I don't Absolutely. know, for me, like, I just associate that with like funniness. Yeah, absolutely. Joe, go for it, one out of 25. Acting. We're going to go with Michael Jordan, 23. 23, okay. Preston, go for it. Uh, acting, I had 22. And, I mean, I, you know, I, while I, I under, totally understand what Budman's saying, and I think sometimes that, that, that definitely happens with comedians, and it definitely happened with Sandler at times, I would say he was – this was, like, really perfect for him. You know, he's from New York. 
like this was just uh this was him like at his best i think but um yeah so 22 all right so i'm gonna give it a 22 on acting tune what we're gonna do is we're gonna snake back around so i'm gonna start off with the plot plot i actually did not like the plot at all because i thought it was way too long-winded and didn't really service anything too well i'm giving it a 16 preston go for the plot one out of 25 i think i liked it a little bit more than you i would say like just the the frantic nature and and how like anxiety inducing it was at times was a bit a bit much uh and it could have been shorter so i gave it 20 joe go for it yeah i'm gonna say 19 it was a bit long i kept pausing it to be like how much longer is in this movie i didn't see good lord there's 48 minutes yeah so i will say it's a little long-winded right go for it plot and then you're gonna do dialogue after that go for it right okay i'm gonna give the plot a uh 20 even again wow was it an hour? Was it 114 minutes? Or? No, dude. It was it was two hours and 15 minutes. So that yeah. would be 200. What? What? I mean, 135 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Lengthy. Lengthy. And then on the plot, I'll the dialogue. On the dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Go for I the dialogue. The dialogue was a 21. 21. So you thought everything they said was realistic. You didn't have any parameters in terms of being like, oh man, when they said something that was kind of weird. I mean, there was a couple of questions I had. Like, does he, did he have cancer? I don't think no. so. We didn't get no. to that because that was actually an interesting point that I wanted to bring up in the terms of like, it literally was the opening scene that we see Howard is, is he's getting a colonoscopy and the well, only resolution. bag. The only res- yeah, but the only resolution is it's a phone call that he got it, it's fixed. It feels like it was something that was set up that maybe got cut out, but I think you're smart to recognize that. Um, well, do you, okay, Joe, go for it. Dialogue yeah. out of 25. I'm going to give it a 22. Uh, I thought everyone was the real thing. I think they were, you know, like everyone in that movie was probably the, the who they were in the movie. So I think the, I think it, yeah, very good. Yeah, pretty realistic. Go ahead, Joe. I'm present. Yeah, dialogue. I give it a twenty-one. I thought it fit perfectly for like the, you know, this this film. Again, like very fast-paced and believable, considering all of like the high-risk situations. And uh, yeah, I, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a sucker for using the F word too many times. So I, I, <laughs> I gave it a twenty-four because I really do think that it was like they almost let these people just go in terms yeah. of how they were speaking. I think Adam Sandler kind of knew the role that, like I said, it was Adam Sandler focused. I feel like he kind of was like, he was really into it and he knew exactly how it was going down. I like the dialogue a lot. Like I said, I'm not a big fan of the plot, but I thought the way that they wrote, or at least they let the actors speak was fantastic. Um, I want to move into the music. Um, I'm giving it a 20. The music was fine. It wasn't anything exceptional. I can't, like when I watched the movie, I didn't think of anything that was going, oh man, this really, really adds to the story, what's going on. It was fine. 20, I guess that's sort of like a B minus or whatever. Uh, Preston, go for it. Um, I thought the the music was, like the score was very interesting in the sense that like it, it seemed kind of out of place in New York, but something about it just fit the mood, like this, these, this trippy, like synth-heavy, like '80s undertones type score is just really cool. And maybe I would have liked, like, a, you know, a few more classic rock cuts. But I will say, 
the usage of Billy Joel's The Stranger was pretty symbolic because that was when he was, <laughs> he was taking his family to, he was dropping off by his apartment. And, you know, I guess at that point, it's after uh, the party, like he's essentially, you know, a stranger in his family now. Yeah, so wait, I'm sorry, I missed the, what would you, you have a 21? I gave it a 22. 22. 22, I'm, my bad. All right, Joe, music, go for yeah, it. I'm going to echo Preston. I think Preston sums it up well. All right, 22. 22. 22 for Joe. Rod, we'll finish it out, and then we'll uh, finish the pod. Go for it. 21. 21. You're usually a score guy. Do you have something to say to add to it? Or what, like when you watched it, what do you think? Um, uh, <laughs> kind of like uh, Preston, I would have liked some 90s like rock ballads. <laughs> rock ballad in the middle of the movie, I mean, no matter what. And it was also – Kind of, I mean, I thought the movie was framed around that time period, and you know, they kind of had some pieces of music that were more contemporary. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. It again, I think everyone sort of when when you rate something in terms of music quality, you always want your favorite things to be involved, and so maybe we're all a bit biased. All right, so what we did, we we rated the movie. We rated. Uh, we're good to go in terms of that. The only thing left to talk about is, guess what? Joe Fine gets his first pick. Joe, what are we reviewing next week? Everyone's been waiting to listen to this. Go for it. Okay, I've been agonizing over this pick <laughs> okay. for the last week. And I've come to the conclusion that we will be reviewing the film Tinker Taylor Soldier Spot. Oh, my God. Gary Oldman. Okay. Gary. So – have a notepad ready and because it's one of you the, can, it, you can barely hear what they're saying in that movie but i'm i'm anxious to watch it again actually go ahead Joe. i will this is a shout out to one of our listeners wilson blunt uh, <laughs> he has he has turned me on to watching all films and whatnot with subtitles on even you know stuff in english so yeah you will catch stuff that you actually miss usually okay when you don't um when you don't have them on so Watch it with subtitles. Have a notepad ready. Write down any questions because it's one of those movies like Pulp Fiction. We kind of discussed that you know you pick up more things each time you watch it. So you know, be ready for you know treachery and um, at the highest level. And to see, um, do you think you're going to give us a little bit of some? Uh, so for the people who don't know, Joe is a history buff. Uh, do you think you're going to be able to give us a little bit of context and background to this movie when we record it next week, or what do you think? Absolutely, yeah. Well, uh, it's set in 70s Britain, so think kind of uh, the full Monty, you know, kind of post-industrial, grimy London. Um, and and the, the film is about George Smiley is tasked with finding the mole in MI6. He's got to find the the person leaking sensitive information to the Soviets. And so it's all these people that are his friends and people he's worked with for a long time. And he's got to set about finding out who's the one betraying everybody. So it's, it, it's stay on the edge of your seats. It's absolutely a fascinating story. Cause I went and saw the theaters because I was very, very curious to see what was going on. Cause the trailer was fantastic. All right. So we're doing Tinker Taylor soldiers by next week. Any final thoughts, Rod? I, I know you always have at least one catchphrase to end the show, which is going to be on a T-shirt. Here soon. For our listeners, what um, what service is that streaming on? Oh, that's on Netflix. Netflix. Netflix, the most popular streaming service. Best Netflix, Netflix. Uh, <laughs> I'll 
All I'd like to say to everyone is just keep on budding.